happy Memorial Day weekend, everybody. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Pocket Cast, Google Play Store, wherever you get your podcast, uh, whatever podcast app you use. Leave us some feedback feedback on our Facebook page. <laughs> you get the picture. Uh, check us out on the social medias and let us know what we can do better. If you have a show idea or uh, something you'd like to say to the show, reach out at creativewritingpodcast at gmail.com and leave us a couple stars, at least one, and tell us what you think. All right. Have a happy and safe Memorial Day weekend. Peace. Welcome to the Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast, your source for motorcycles, mayhem, and misinformation. Listen, I can barely tie a shoe, let alone figure out this thing. Kangaroos is leaping down the street every day. And isn't that funny how people say not to be an asshole, but do they want to be an asshole? You're 41 and started a race career. My skin met the asshole. But these new new ways kept my... I sound like a fat, hairy, bearded slob. I have to stop talking shit. All right, a couple of blurbs. Whatever they do with cocaine. All right, technically all chaps are asses, right? Hey, hey, new intro, worst intro ever possibly, but we're going to roll with it this weekend. Happy Memorial Day weekend, America. If you are in the U.S. of A uh, and uh, you are a veteran or you know a veteran or a family of a veteran, uh, happy Memorial Day to you. Uh, It's kind of a weird day to memorialize, but um, yeah, if you know a loved one that has served or lost a loved one that served, um, you know... Give, give the ones you still have a hug and a kiss. And if you're a vet, uh, happy Memorial Day from Creative Writing Podcast. And if you're in other parts of the world, oddly enough, this weekend is a, is a large um, holiday weekend. I guess, um, let me see, we got a, like a bank holiday happening on Monday as well in the UK and some other countries in Europe. So there's going to be a lot of people in different countries uh, taking it easy on Monday, probably increased traffic. And uh, so all you riders, be careful for cagers out there and keep your eyes peeled and ride safe. Don't drink and ride and uh, watch out for people who've been drinking and driving because... There's no way you want to collide with a 3,500-pound th- vehicle that's got an intoxicatorio at the wheel. That's, <laughs> did I just make that word up? Um, also, listen to this, man. On the 26th in Poland, it's Mother's Day. And on the 28th in France, it's Mother's Day. And on the 25th in Germany, it was Father's Day. Faza? Faza? Fear? Faza? I don't know. So, yeah, happy days to all you mothers and fathers over in that part of the world. Um, there's dragon boat festivals happening specifically in China, but I think other some other uh, countries, and, and I know here they're going to be having some in um, Chinatown and stuff, so happy dragon boat festival and African Unity slash, you know, Independence Day. Happy African Unity, Unity Day and happy, happy African Independence Month, I think, to... Uh, all those countries in Africa who uh, got their independence from the colonies. And um, 
Happy Ascension Day? I don't even know what that is, but uh, it's all over the world calendars. I think Ramadan started too, so everybody, if you're out there and uh, it's going to be a big holiday for you and there's going to be increased traffic on the road or increased partying, take it easy, be careful, and uh, enjoy yourselves. All right, let's get into the show. So kicking off this week in uh, this, this show, One Mile... 37 miles, 500 miles. And those are all approximations. Those aren't exact mile numbers. But let's talk about some miles. Last week, Sacto Mile, baby. Uh, before we jump into the Sacto Mile to Memorial uh, Memorial Day weekend here, Memorial Week has been all week for Nikki Hayden. Almost every single uh, you know race series over the weekend um, before he made his final pass uh, into the back straight, was uh, talking about Nikki on Sunday. You know, the French GP, um, the flat track Brian Smith won and, and dedicated it to uh, to Nikki. Uh, lots of motocrossers and stuff having his number on the back. It was it was such a great uh, outpouring of su- uh, support for his family and uh, memories for Nikki. Of course, after he passed too, everybody came out and had something great to say about him and uh, paying tribute to the man across so many disciplines and it's because he raced in almost every single one of those disciplines that has uh, basically paid tribute to him and I feel like we were closing a chapter and obviously starting a new chapter in the motorcycling world this is like one of those defining eras uh, you know like when uh, a great passes a great MotoGP legend um, a great he was a flat tracker he raced motocross but uh, not professionally as far as I know he raced supermoto I pay, I posted some old videos up on uh, our, our Facebook page of him actually racing in the Stars uh, supermoto series which is still going I think and I remember the first time I saw that on TV I thought what the heck it's road racing and dirt biking and it was the coolest thing ever. I forget where. Um, I, I must have been on Speed Vision back when they played actual racing all the time, you know, <laughs> before they turned into like Formula One and NASCAR and reality TV or whatever. I don't even know if they're around anymore. But yeah, that was back in the day when they used to play some really cool grassroots stuff. So a lot of people paying tribute to him. Uh, let's talk really quickly about the. Uh, American flat track tribute to to Nikki Hayden. They uh, remembered him after his tragic passing on Monday and uh, paying tribute to his breakout year, uh, 1999. He took home his first victory uh, in the Grand National Championship at the Hagerstown Half Mile. Uh, That year, he was the American flat track rookie of the year and that same year in the AMA as a privateer on a Supersport uh, championship, I believe he he won it and he was named AMA's Athlete of the Year. So 1999, a big year for him. He was a flat track rookie of the year, AMA Athlete of the Year, Supersport uh, six, uh, Supersport champ, and uh, yeah, great year for him. And just an amazing thing. Even on Honda's website, if you were to go to Honda. Um, you know their their uh, motor their power sports website, not the car website, obviously. But uh, yeah, he was right there on the front page before any of the models and stuff came up. So it was really, really uh, touching tribute. Greg White 
had uh, one of the best. Uh, it was on BN Sports, but it got broadcast, I think, out to YouTube. One of the best tributes um, ever to Nikki Hayden and everybody, man, everybody. So it was, it's a sad, been a sad week, uh, but it's been a whole week of uh, tributes and uh, well wishes for him and his family. So it was kind of cool to see that wrap up at the mile. What else happened at the mile? Well, you heard me say that Brian Smith took the victory, and that he did. The Indian Wrecking Crew again sweeping the podium. Uh, this is like their third podium sweep. I think they've raced five races so far, and I think that they have swept the podium three times. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but man, talk about uh, just amazing, amazing um you know, outcome for these guys. A lot of other podcasts I've been hearing talking about uh, flat tracking. Not all of them big fans. I mean, well, uh, they're big fans. I shouldn't say that. Not all of them uh, seasoned fans, I guess. And even me, I mean, I've, I've been watching it for a long time, but I haven't been, you know, crunching numbers and paying attention to stats necessarily. Uh, just been thrilled by the action. I'm kind of like a in the moment type of person and, uh, you know, that's why I'm not so great at like predictions and and uh, speculation and all that stuff. But so recently I have been since starting the show. I've been not just uh, taking everything at face value. I've been kind of trying to, you know, suss out some stuff and see what's been going on. And I heard uh, some other people talking about basically wondering why Harley is getting their booties handed to him. And uh, in my opinion, it has part part of it's to do with the riders. Um, let's take a look. I went, I went back to 2009. Now they used to score. It's really hard to compare apples to apples when some of those apples used to ride oranges and they used to come, they used to ride singles on the short tracks and every, everybody did. Everybody rode twins, whether you, you were in GNC one or two or flat track pro or whatever they used to call the series. Um, they've made several changes and I, I'm, I'm really, really happy with the changes that Michael Locke has made. And I hope that this twins and singles format sticks around for a while because it's so easy to see if you go back and look at the records, you gotta you gotta look at and see who won what singles, who who won the twins, and then who took the the uh, the title. And the funny thing is, is that you could get all three titles in one year. You could get the singles title, you could get the twins title, you could get the. Uh, you know, get the, um, the championship title. And so you could win three, three trophies in one year, sort of. So I'm, I'm super glad that they've changed the format, but it makes sussing out the records and who's actually going to be competitive a little bit hard. So looking at, you know, let's, uh, talk about Davis Fisher too. He's like the newest guy of the Harley Wrecking Crew. He's up. He was up and coming. He's uh, did really well, and he did has done probably the most testing on the XG uh, since they came out. That all last season he did a whole bunch of testing on it, and um, you know he's performing pretty well, um, doing really good on it uh, in testing. But you know I, I don't think they. I don't know. Those XRs had just been around for like 40 years dominating. You know what I mean? And so it's just really weird. I think Indian stepping in has really made Harley have to 
uh, you know, step up their game, which is what we all want to see and what we all love, but they're not going to be on top of the podium as a result. And sometimes you got to, you got to figure that, Hey, we're in development mode right now. And it's going to take us a couple of years where Indian has been around for a couple of years. And I can guarantee they didn't just say, Hey, we're going to build a bike and, uh, see what we can do. They've been on it for a while. And so basically when we go, let's go back and look at Coolbeth stats. Now, like I said, they used to uh, score the singles and the twins separately. And so I'm going to pull up the uh, nationals here. Okay, here we go. So in the singles, <clears throat> in 2009, he got seventh in the singles and second place in the twins. So that's great. Um, in 2010, he got sixth in the singles, second in the twins, but he was fifth overall in the season standings. Let me uh, skip up here to 11. In uh, 2011, yep, here we go. 2011, he was fourth place overall. And in the singles, he took fifth. And in the twins, he took uh, fourth. In 2012, he was 12th in the singles and fifth in the twins. So, you know, you could tell, and it's this is what I'm saying. It's hard to talk about. Uh, twins and singles when you're really comparing short track to miles and half miles and stuff like that and so it's kind of hard to get a gauge of, of where he stands He's, he came in seventh overall that season um 2013th he came 11th in the singles fifth in the twins uh 2014th he was 11th in the singles again fourth in the twins um, in 2015, they just called it GNC one and they had singles and twins, but they, you know, they didn't score them as a separate, uh, a separate championship anymore. You just won the GNC one or the GNC two. So in GNC one on the singles, he got third, uh, and on twins, he got, uh, was sixth and overall, I forget what, he, where he placed. Um, but also last year. Uh, GNC won singles. He came in six, and the Twins he came in eighth. So Kubeth's been kind of dropping back. And let's see, 2012 he came in seventh overall. Uh, 2013 <clears throat> he came in oh, sixth overall. 2014 he came in. Uh, this is and this is um, regardless of where he placed fourth overall in 2014. And in 2015, I know he's been making his uh, fourth in 2015. And then last year, I don't think he was uh, scored that well. Yeah, last year he was down in seventh. So I don't know. He's he's never been a podium guy, but he's been up there close back up and down, up and down. I remember in 2015, I believe it was, he was talking about how much work he'd been putting in and he was showing it wasn't CrossFit, but it was something sort of like that where he was, uh, you know, doing all sorts of workouts and, uh, you know, putting in the, putting in the miles and, and putting in the training. And I believe him. I believe that he has been. Uh, but at the same time, he just hasn't been super consistent. He, and he, I forget the last time he won a championship. It's been a little bit, a little bit. You know what I mean? And uh, same with with Halbert. I mean, if I was Harley, uh, Jake Johnson actually, I think, has taken more uh, titles recently than than Kubeth. Uh, going back to 2009, Johnson took fifth in the singles, uh, seventh in the twins. In 2010, he took fourth in the singles and uh, first in the Twins, and I think he won that year. 
sorry for jumping back around. This is awesome to jump back and forth here, isn't it? In the uh, in the in the overalls. Yeah. So Jake Johnson did. He took first in um, took the title in 2010. Uh, in 2011, he took the title again. And where did he score? Let me see. In the singles, he was um, fifth, and then the twins, he was fourth. In 2012, oh, oops, I'm sorry, that's Cool Beth. Three. Uh, he was second in the singles and second in the twins. Um, in 2012, he was four and three. In 2013, he was nine and eight. And I forget if he had an injury that year. I forget what happened that year. Um, so he bounced back in 2014 for a two and three. Uh, in 2015, the GNC won. Of course, they scored it all the same again. In the singles, he was 14th. And in the twins, he was 7th. And then uh, last year, he was 4-1. and one. And so Jake Johnson is one of those guys that's been uh, has been up there. Um, let me see. Where was he in 2012 overall? Jake Johnson, where are you? I don't even see him, and I can't find him. And uh... oh, there he is, third. Three. So in 2012, he was third, and in 2013, so he's um, basically, I guess, with making this shorter than it, than it needs to be. Um, every year except for 2013, which is when he fell back, and I'm not 100% sure why. Let me see, Jake Chop, did he have a off? No, he raced all the races except for uh, 2014 or 2013 rather I'm sorry he had a pretty good uh, turnout and in 2014 he was uh, third overall 2015 he was oh he was down there in 2015 where is Jake Johnson in 11th yeah that's the year I couldn't think if he had a crash either Uh, yeah he only raced he didn't race like the whole middle of the year I think he did have a crash that year um or something happened, he was out. And then last year, I remember he did pretty good. Yeah, he came in fourth last year. And he, um, you know, just, he did pretty well. So aside from from that, I mean, Davis Fisher too. Davis Fisher really only came into the, uh, I think last year was his first year in the GNC one. Could be wrong. Let me check 2015 for Davis Fisher here. This is a making for awesome audio but why don't you do your own podcast and leave me alone (laughs) you guys are jerks yeah davis fisher i think last year was his first year um moving up into the gnc1 and yeah so i don't know he he's a guy i guess we're gonna have to keep our eyes on jake johnson's been up there kenny coolbeth i feel like has been moving backwards but also if you listen to the indians if you go back and listen to some of our podcasts from last year when we were going to a lot of the Ivy League events and the Indians had uh, hooligan, you know, some of the Rolling Sands built hooligans there. Um, you can hear the Indians, they have this like raw sound. And uh, I mean, obviously that's probably because of the valving and because of the revving. And they, I know they had something where the XRs were having to be tore down all the time after every single race to replace the main bearings or something like that. And uh, the Indians wanted to make a bearing that would last all season. And, you know, when you're tearing the motors down and putting them together, like down to the mains or something like that, every single race, right down to the crank, uh, it can be tedious. And they needed to do something. The XG is coming along. I remember when Brad Baker and Nicole, I 
think they had got married already. So she was Nicole Meese, not Nichezza anymore. And uh, and Jared Meese went ice racing for the first time on the XGs. I thought, oh man, this is going to be awesome. They took the street, they turned it into something pretty amazing, and it's going to be a cool bike. And so they just need some time. They've had a few more years on it than Indian has with theirs, but Indian decided they were going to come out and they made a concerted effort and they built a pretty bitchin' bike. And if you go to uh, Cycle World from... I think it was the middle of last year uh, before they, you know, before Joe Cop made the run on it uh, in the at the um, uh, Santa Rosa mile. They were talking about it and Cycle World did like a whole technical breakdown on it and all the different things about it and how crazy it was going to be. So I don't know. It's not like Harley's fault that they have uh, a bike that's brand new and they're developing. And, and I don't know if it's their fault that they chose the riders who they have because I wouldn't have cho- chose Coolbeth. He's been a long-term Harley rider, finally getting a factory deal. I mean, they kind of owe it to him actually. Um, and Davis Fisher, he, I think the kid was pretty good, but I'm not a hundred percent sure if he was, would have been the guy I would have picked. Uh, you know, he did the development writing for them, but I don't know if I would have picked him to be my factory guy right off the bat. You know, I, I probably would have picked Jake Johnson because I think that he's still he's still young and relevant. Uh, I might have even pick Kyle Johnson. I don't think they're any relation, but uh, Kyle Johnson's pretty good. Um, one of those guys that's kind of been sneaking up there is uh, Jeffrey Jeffrey Carver Jr. I think he's been pretty consistent. He's like not one of the names that you always hear. You know, you used to hear the Bowmans all the time and Vanderkoy, and you know, all these names would sneak up and go away because of. Like I said, they used to race singles and twins, and some guys were just better on some than others. That's why it's kind of hard for me to compare apples to apples at this point, because they didn't used to race like that. So you would hear these names uh, pretty consistently, and then they'd drop away. Um, I I even would have picked Stevie Bonzi. Uh, He got uh, injured last year, though, and um, you know, if he he hadn't had that fall, I think I would have picked would have picked him. Um, So I guess we should just stay with people that are, you know, that weren't injured. yeah, I don't know. I think I would have picked Jake Johnson, uh, probably Kyle Johnson, maybe Davis Fisher. I mean, he's uh, we're gonna have to see where where Davis Fisher stacks up. And this year, uh, you know, I don't know where he's finished, but I don't think it's been pretty high. Uh, let me see, Davis Fisher ninth um, overall right now. He's took three sevenths, so that's pretty consistent. There's been some people that have uh, finished pretty high at the end of the season by just. Uh, finishing so he's had two dnfs um three uh seventh places i mean if he were to keep seventh and not get like 14th and 12th and 18th and first uh he might actually you know be able to to move up a couple spots take seventh overall maybe fifth overall um if he were to score a little bit higher so maybe davis fisher was a good choice but um i i don't know if i would have would have picked those three per se Hey guys, this seems like a good place to take a break from yapping and do a little bit of talking about friends of the show, Daily Bikers, dailybikers.com, Daily Bikers Dan, all your bike, motorcycle needs, biking needs, bicycling needs, not quite. Go check out dailybikers.com for gear reports, ride reports from the land of Oz, um, and some great illustrations, bike-related illustrations. That's dailybikers.com. Search them on Etsy. Hey, uh... I, I want to get to the singles real quick. So let me let me just finish wrapping up here about uh, speculation about Harley and all that stuff and, and uh, tell you the results of the Sacramento Mile. 
Okay, Smith set a new record uh, by claim he's he's won the last seven in a row. First off, Sacramento Miles, and he set a new record by becoming the first person I believe to win on three different makes in uh, 2009. He won it, or I'm sorry, in 2011 he won it on a Harley. Um, then of course on his Kawasaki from 2012 to last year, and then he just took it on an Indian this year. So seven in a row. And on three different manufacturers, that's pretty amazing uh, for this guy. And so he took he took the win. Obviously, Indians swept the podium again. Um, we got Meese and Baker, you know, battling it out. Brad Baker actually out front for quite a long time, and uh, thought he was going to win the race. He's Mister Smooth. He's pretty consistent. And when you can see, uh, I've watched him race uh, short track before. Um, seen him changing up his line. I watched, I saw him at the, uh, one of the Ivy league events and I saw him at the super prestigio and you could see how he adapts his line. He looks back and sees where people are. Um, and he'll change up lines to, you know, get that gap. And if you watched last year's finale, Oh my God, he was like, what? Like 14 seconds ahead or something. It was some crazy, like 14 or 10 seconds. I forget the, the margin, but he's just out front when he's out front. So this time around he was out front and he was gapping people even like on the, I think on the last lap, he had quite a sizable lead. And then all of a sudden, uh, on the last lap, I think Smith came, uh, past Baker, if I remember correctly. And, uh, just like right out of the last turn, here he here he comes wheeling in and he's pulling Meese with him. And uh, you could literally throw one of those big party sombreros over uh, over everybody as they cross the line. It was pretty pretty amazing. The gap from first back to second was point uh, zero two five twenty five thousandths of a second. Uh, Smith over Meese, Baker. Uh, uh, five hundredths after that so yeah literally um almost down to the wire for all of them let's hop over to the singles jana texter taking her second podium in a row second uh first place actually in a row she won uh the sacramento mile last time in 2013 so it's been four years she's been in the top um like five Four or five, like at least in the top five, I think, since then uh, for the past four years. So she was kind of building up to that. Um, so it's her second podium in the row. Uh, she won the Springfield Mile, I think, also back in 2013. So 2013 was her year. She, uh, they're headed there again uh, this weekend. Pay attention for that on Fans Choice TV. And uh, what can I say? Um, the same thing happened. Okay, if you if you watch the race, Brad Baker. He was in the lead um, until, like I said, until like like the last lap, I think, and uh, looked like he was gonna take it until everybody just like slipstreamed by him and shot him back to third. Same thing happened with Texter. Super tight race. You could have thrown one of those big uh, novelty sombreros over everybody that was there. Her and um, Tristan Avery were running down Kevin Stolings, who had built up a pretty sizable lead, just like Brad Baker had, and. In the last lap, she managed to uh, get in second, I think. And then in the last corner, she shot past him. And Avery just used her, you know, came by her. She won by 65 thousandths of a second. And uh, third place was point, uh, .170 off the lead time. So, like, 170, 1700s, I guess. So, you know, super close races in both classes. Super awesome. 
And uh, it's good to see her back up on top again. Her and Richie Morris. She's been with Richie Morris for a little while now. So good to see her back up on top. While we jam out to this 80s video game slash porno music, uh, don't forget, watch fanschoice.tv. I guarantee that the uh, bandwidth issue probably has not been solved yet. But uh, if you are if you don't get Fans Choice TV or your internet's super slow, um, hang around and watch them on uh, NBC Sports come later ne- next month in June, I guess. All right. Let's move on to the next segment of the show. We've spent about half an hour talking about Flat Track. I really stretched that out. I did not have the uh, Hooligan Dirt Dash results from Texas, which I was kind of hoping to get. So sorry for extending this one a little further than you wanted to hear about. Let's talk about 37 miles. Let's move up a little bit. Thirty-seven miles seems kind of like an odd number to choose. Why would I choose that? Like thirty-seven point seven five or something weird like that, to be exact. I'll tell you why. You know what else kicks off this weekend besides the Springfield Mile? The Isle of Man TT, folks. Now in its one hundredth year, the tourist trophy. Uh, or the Isle of Man TT, as a lot of people call it. Uh, it almost never existed, actually. Thanks to the uh, Secretary of the Automobile Club of Great Britain and Ireland, Sir Julian Ord, it's something that we can all enjoy today. And I don't think it's in its 100th running. Uh, from what I know, it started in 1907. It is now 2017. But... Um, it didn't run there for a few years because of the war. So I guess it is in its 100th year, right? Because that'd be 110 years, I guess. Yeah, so it, I guess it is in its 100th year of running. Uh, so way back in 1904, uh, Great Britain passed an act of parliament, actually, that forbade competition and established a 20-mile-per-hour speed limit on public roads and byways. You know, this is 1904, uh, 20 miles an hour seemed pretty outrageous back then. Blow your knickers right off. Um, so he he traveled to the Isle of Man. He was the uh, secretary of the Automobile Club. And if you go back in history, you'll learn that like from the late 1800s to uh, you know the early 1900s for sure, the first automobile and motorcycle race happened when the second one was built, as they say. And immediately automobile clubs started popping up racing leagues started popping up all this great stuff right around the turn of the century so you know britain passed this law and in 1904 ord goes over to the isle of man and he's thinking you know uh england has control of parts of northern ireland and uh you know most of the isle of of what we call great britain which is uh, england scotland and wales right I'm going to go over here to Man and see what that, you know, the Manx have their own like uh, separate sort of like independence uh, or whatnot. And so I'm going to go over here and see what they say. And sure enough, they were they were for it. And it's one of the few places in the world besides Macau. And um, there's a couple other places. Well, Ireland, of course, Ireland has quite a bit of road racing, actually. Uh, and 
you would be surprised. I mean, we call road racing, racing on tracks and people do one laps of America, uh, clandestinely because it's against the law um and things like that but this is real road racing like when you drive up a canyon and you're like whoa i really want to do this uh basically that's what they're doing now the isle of man may seem pretty hardcore but it's actually nothing compared to like the northwest 200 um you know they have the ulster uh gp the southern uh, 100 or something like that. Like there's a bunch of road races series that almost anybody do, or most people don't know about myself included. I, I only basically know a couple. Um, and I think there's probably more than a handful. And so basically, you know, the highways act of 1904 on man, on man, uh, allowed for the establishment of a road course that the uh, auto club would race on and European racing was taking off and, you know, they would road race all over stuff, uh, you know, public roads and mountain ways, goat paths, anything they could uh, drive on, they would race on. And so great Britain didn't have uh, a leg uh, to compete on. So here they went to man and they established a 52.15 mile course and there they could have like the great British championships over there, you know, and, and, uh, host uh, the Europeans and come over. Uh, so the following year, a trial race for motorbikes was held, but they weren't powerful enough to climb the steep grades of the mountain course. Um, and so the editor of the motorcycle magazine uh, proposed a motorbike race um, while he was at the dinner of the uh, Auto Cycle Club in London in January of 1907. And he said, you know, there should be two classes. Um, this is the tourist trophy. And why, you know, most cars that are grand touring and stuff like that, they don't understand. Back in the day, you used to race your car to show kind of how luxurious it was, I guess. And uh, I never understood why stuff was called GT and grand touring and why touring cars had to be specific, like, you know, four-door saloon cars. They couldn't be coupes and all that stuff. Well, it's because it kind of goes back to this heritage of you're, you're kind of showing your touring car. You're showing off its amenities and how well it can uh make it across these like uh, uh courses with um in, in luxurious style i guess you know I, I, they might have been racing to show that you could do it without falling apart back in the day and so they required stuff um i'll get to that in a second uh so they wanted to do two classes one was going to be a single cylinder machine that could average about 90 miles per gallon and the other one would be twins that would average about 75 miles per gallon and they wanted to show off uh seats um pedals uh, exhaust silencers and mud guards. Those were all uh, tightly regulated since the races were meant to showcase the touring capabilities of the bikes. And uh, up until 1911, it was um, rerouted uh, through down through the city and around the town. But in 1911, the circuit moved up to the mountains again. That mountain course that is world famous today, the Snevel Mountain Course, is uh, basically what the bikes couldn't make it up. And so in 1911, you know, it returns. Crowds gathered in the grandstands to watch uh, the American manufacturer Indian take the top three spots that year. So 1911 was pivotal year. If you go back to our uh, rivalry rekindled episode um, where we talked about Indian and how they competed worldwide and, and so did Harley, um, this was like the proving ground. If you came to man and you could do it, then you, you know, that was like something really uh, to speak of. It was like an endurance race of all endurance races. So the circuit passed through the mountain course four times for the junior class, which is about a uh, equaled out to about 150 miles 
and then five times for the senior class, which uh, equaled to like 189. So they're trying to hit like 190 or something. And it was uh, during those early years that the mountain circuit was really little more than like a, a horse track, right? Or like a cart path. And it included gates between the fields. And I didn't know this actually until I started uh, looking this up. Um, but it was the duty of the first rider around in the morning to open all the gates along the way. And the last rider was responsible for shutting them down. So if you could imagine these dudes today, nowadays, uh, doing like a hundred and, you know, 60, 180, 200 miles an hour. And then like having to hit the brakes to open, open a gate to go through someone's, you know, horse pasture and come down but you know there's old pictures of guys jumping uh their bikes just like they do today um you know they're doing like 90 miles 90 miles an hour and stuff on that thing like way back in the day uh you know that's like half of what they're doing today but the the point being is that back then they were jumping on dirt i think i've seen pictures of them coming around on cobblestones and stuff and if you look at the island not much has changed except for the quality of the road surface and of course the quality of the bikes and so it's pretty amazing the race hit the pause button from 1914 to 1920 for world war one of course um and lots of legends came out of there there was um you know guys like Giacomo Agostini raced over there. Uh, you had, I think, Redman. He was a famous uh, Brit racer from over there. Uh, oh, Jeff Duke, uh, somebody that comes to mind. Um, I'm trying to remember all the old guys. I'm going to have to... Uh, I, I know that some of the newer guys are, um, you know, like Carl uh, Fogarty and stuff. Uh, John Surtees raced over there. Uh, he just passed away recently. Mike Halewood, uh, Phil Reed, that's right, and a uh, Redman, Jim Redman, Jim Redman was his name. Um, and these guys are riding around like 125s, 250s, 350s. Uh, you know what I mean? They're not on huge uh, bikes. And um, so in 1923, saw the introduction of the sidecars. And so uh, that was another thing, you know, that they raced sidecars over there, which is pretty insane. Uh, I was looking at their history page and I noticed that 1949, the TT became a venue for the Motorcycle World Championships. Um, so that's pretty interesting. In the 1950s, uh, the World Championship uh, status started bringing top riders over there. And that's when you start seeing these guys like Jeff Duke, uh, Bob McIntyre. Um, you see stuff like Moto, uh, Mondial, Moto Guzzi, uh I'm, uh, what am I thinking of? MV Agusta, Jalera, all these, uh, other, uh, manufacturers start showing up too. Um, we have stuff, you know, in like records start being set in uh, 1957, uh, Bob McIntyre from Scotland became the first guy to do over a hundred miles an hour who Jeff Duke, um, he was super, he was at like 99.97. And even today, uh, records, when they get broke, they get broke at like, you know, point so-and-so miles per hour or point so-and-so average lap uh, speed. And you don't just go out and break them by like 10 miles an hour. It's just unheard of. That's how uh, technical and good all these guys are. Um, I mentioned Giacomo Agostini earlier. Did I mention? Yeah, I mentioned uh, John Sertiz. I mentioned all the writers that were from that era. Uh, you know, c- down later into the... Um, into the seventies, we start, you know, seeing guys like, uh, Joey Dunlop show up. I, m- I mentioned the Dunlop, uh, f- family, you know, now we, we got Michael, um, Joey, and I'm going to punch myself in the face cause I can't remember, 
Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, so um, in 77, uh, the first sidecar exceeded the 100 mile an hour mark. And then um, the GP, uh, Pat Hennen, was the uh, first sub 20 minute lap on board a 500 Suzuki in the senior TT. Um, Mike Hillwood came back. Uh, he hadn't been there for 11 years and he came back in uh, 78 and 79 uh went in 14 14 tts and, and all um joey dunlop totally dominated the 80s he got his the first 150 mile an hour lap um you know just he was a true legend true legend uh steve hillsop broke uh joey dunlop's uh, lap of uh, 121.34 in 1989 um carl fogarty i don't know if i mentioned him already i, I recorded over some of this uh, from earlier but carl fogarty uh he started coming there and uh Joey Dunlop made his 14th win of the TTs uh, in 92. And uh, that was also the year that Carl Fogarty came over. Um, a Norton ridden by Hillsop had their first uh, TT win since Mike Hillwood's 1961 victory. So, I mean, you're, got, you're out of the spotlight for like 30 years. Um, Joey Dunlop at 48, dude, recorded his 26th and final TT win uh, in 2000 and the TT races were canceled in 2001 due to the, the concerns over a uh, foot and mouth epidemic that was destroying, uh, the mainland. I had no idea that that even was happening, but that's a, a pretty nasty, uh, sickness. Um, John McGinnis, of course, and Guy Martin, all these guys start to come in now. Uh, John McGinnis got to 129.4, 11, uh, TT victories, uh, set new lap and race records. Uh, we got, you know, Guy Martin, who's such a huge part of the TT has actually never won it. Uh, he's come pretty close, but, uh, never won it. Um, McGinnis got his 15th, uh, TT in 2009. And uh, he's got more since then. This this is from the Isle of Man's website, uh, and they haven't updated it in a while because I could tell. Uh, it has the lap record at 131. I, th- I believe Ian Hutchinson just set 133 like over the summer or, or like uh, over the last couple, mu- couple months ago d- during testing, like on a, a BMW or something like that. And um, him and... Him and um, Michael Dunlop, we're, we're at it. Um, so this thing, it's it's a 14-day long thing. I mean, there's like a, re- a week of, I think there's like a week of practice and testing and then a week of racing or something like that. Um, and if you go back and listen to the Motorcycles and Misfits podcast, their buddy uh, was over there racing it on his Supermoto. One of the very first years, uh, last year or the year before, I forget when he went over there, on a Supermoto. So that's crazy in and of itself that um, they're like introducing new classes all the time and, uh, kind of, you know, it's, it's steeped in tradition, but yet they were like, okay, well, we'll, we'll let you try it this time. I forget if he said that they were, uh, open to it again this year. I, you know, I'm not hundred percent sure, but, um, yeah, it's a little bit hard to get in. I don't know any TT racers, so you're going to have to go listen to other podcasts where they talk to people on how, how hard it is to get in, but, uh, Yuri Berrigan is the gentleman's name. And if you listen to him on the, the Eminem podcast, he will tell you that it was like quite a chore to get the stuff over there, get it, 
you know, registered and teched and uh, raced and get in your amount of numbers in time because it can get canceled. It's one of the few races where in the town it might be cloudy and on the mountain it's sunny or vice versa. Uh, they have rain cancellations, mist cancellations, um, you know, red flag all the time. And all the time it'll be perfect conditions down in the town and up on the hill. It's like, a sleet or something like that. So it's totally crazy. It's almost like racing in two different countries at the same time, you know, on this, uh, 37 plus mile, uh, course, you know, just, you're going from like a warm, maybe warm and humid low to like a, a dry, cold, maybe even wet highland and coming back down. It's pretty, uh, pretty intense. Um, the classic TT, like I said, they're kind of trying to push this stuff throughout the year. The classic TT, uh, takes place in, uh, from August, into the first of September. And, um, that's where you get to see like vintage bikes. You get to see the different classes that aren't like, uh, you know, the super popular classes of like sidecar, uh, super sport, poker stars, senior TT class, all this stuff, like the super sport and the, uh, super bike races and the sidecar races, all the other stuff. I'm pretty sure races at the classic TT, um, or the Manx TT as they might have used to call it. So, yeah, all that stuff goes down uh, in August. And traditionally, the TT started, you know, way back in uh, 1904 or 07 is when it started in May. And so that's they always started at the end of May going into June. I'm not 100% sure if that's because when they have their best weather, but uh, that's when it goes down. So check that out if you get a chance. It's really interesting. And I have some of the chattering... Um, Wolverine, as I call him, Guy Martin. He, like I said, he's never won a race. He's crashed like probably more times than he's podiumed. And, uh, he's just one of those guys that he's just such a huge personality and he's into everything that, um, you know, he's, he's like one of the faces of, if you don't, it's almost like if you don't know, if you know, think about the Isle of Man TT and you're not a big fan of any of the racers there and you, somebody says Guy Martin, you go, oh, the guy with the sideburns that you can't understand. Yeah, that guy. So, uh, I have a, I have a video clip here. I, I'd like to analyze this. Um, if you can tell what he's saying, let me know. I think I'm just going to ask, ask him a question, throw it out there and see what happens. And, uh, See if I'll throw a response back that makes sense. Guy, uh, creative writing here. What is your opinion of uh, motorcycle riding and uh, the public school system? It's steady run round. Steady run round. Yeah. Um, Darren and his boys have sorted the bike out. I just, yeah, it was a bit last minute. I just got on it. I never checked anything. But yeah, yeah, we went round. Done half a dozen laps. Spawn. Spawn. Just, yeah, he's just me. I'm just bloody dithering on. I just need to learn a bit. Pull my finger out. Maybe it's all right. I'm enjoying it. Bloody sun's out, eh? Sun's out. It's great. Guy, uh, creative writing here again. Uh, second follow-up question: What's the uh, what's the first thing you think of when I say the word uh, chipmunk? That's chipmunk. If I want to race the TT, I need to get some signatures, so I need to be here to get my signatures, and that's that's okay. the only reason I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and 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 um, I love riding. I do love riding. Like if I get to ride, it's, you know, I love riding. And we've got a bit of work to do with the Honda to get it. Um, it's new model. Um, bit of tweaking to do to get it where we need it so um yes that's why we're here it's, it's um yeah um serves a purpose it serves a purpose here to do a job speaking of uh tweaking uh can you be competitive here without um, can i be competitive um i'm not i'm we're here to do a job i mean a job it's, it's a means to an end um to learn about the bike and try and move on with that but well the areas we need to learn about the bike this isn't really the place um 
to learn, like top gear, bottom gear, um, chicanes. For what we need to learn with the bike, it's all about throttle connection, mid-throttle stuff, um, which we're not going to learn here. But we'll, there's other areas where we'll learn. There's other areas like corner entry and that. Which, yeah, 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 it serves a purpose. It serves a purpose. Hey, the sun's out. I get to ride my mountain bike on Friday. Um, what else? What else can we do on Maria? It's not an island. I love, it. I love the folk. It's just great. We're, yeah, we're going to go. Um, we was going to go to Ross Trevor, but now we're going to go. We're going to go that way somewhere. I don't know. Where. We're going to go ride the mountain bikes Friday. Um, it just yeah. Yeah, yeah tight. I'll roll for Sam Finley from Stonyford. I roll for Yule Duncan from um, Claudie. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, the racing for me all sad in Northern Ireland. You know, and it's yeah, yeah, it's safe. Yeah, it's great. I love it over. I love the people. I love, love what it's, you know. It's, it's like your national sport over here. It's bloody great. It's bloody great. That's why I've been over. I've done the Tandragee. I've done the Cookstown. I absolutely love it. And I've forgotten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Love it. Yeah. Guy, did did you say Taco and Coxton? No, no. I, I packed in. I packed in. I sort of. I hadn't officially packed in, but I sort of. I went and raced, I missed last year, so I raced my push bike um, in America, and I thought, yeah, I was, I was telling the title, I, I went and did that race, and it sort, it sort of changed my life, really, doing that race, it was, and, and doing that race, I, I thought, um, during, I should, I should have packed in racing four or five years ago, because I, 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 it took me, took for this push bike race to, to make me realise I want to enjoy my motorbike racing, it was just, I was just going, because I loved the task team, and I loved, you know, I just I loved what there was about, you know, there was real passion about it, but really, I was just doing it, I was just going through the motions. The end of one season, we'll turn it into the start of a next, and that, I just turned it, and I just thought, yeah, I, just, I was in that vicious circle, that, um, what's it called? What's it called? What's that called? Um, the Fast and the Furious. The Truman Show. No. What's it called? What, what was that called? Caddyshack. They do, the Truman Show. Go on, what was, what was that called? What, it was going through the Groundhog Day. No, the Caddyshack. That's another one, isn't it? The Torque. That's another film. The Groundhog Day. It just felt like you was going through, oh yeah, next season, or the next season. You didn't know until it took me took for me to break the cycle to realise. Guy, creative writing again. Is the Truman Show your favourite movie? Packed in. Um, and then Onda kept saying, why don't you come and ride the new Fireblade? And I said, no, I'm all right. I'm happy really. He says, what if you can ride the Onda 6? So I'm only here. Can I get to ride the Onda 6? You know, you've heard the famous Onda 6, Absolutely. the 297 Onda 6. I'm getting to ride that in July. Um, and ride the new Fireblade. So I thought, really? I thought, I'd be daft not to. I can't think of a reason not to do it. So I thought, right, I'm doing it. So that's, I'm on it, I'm here. Guy, creative writing again. Have you ever thought about hosting your own podcast? You seem really passionate about motorcycles, and you're good at talking fast. Motorbike, yeah, probably more passionate than ever. In, in, but it took for all this stuff that's gone on for um, riding for the big teams, um, crashes, and the bullshit of racing. It, it, it took for all that for me to realise why I started racing motorbikes and I only started racing motorbikes because I love building motorbikes and I love mucking about in motorbikes and it took for all that to happen for me to realise oh yeah that's why I'm racing motorbikes I love building stuff and I get to ride the Honda 297 so that's 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 like a man in his shed that built an amazing motorbike like a, like a benchmark motorbike you know like you know, you know, you know that it's like the benchmarking motorbike in the Honda 297. You know, it's 70 horsepower, six cylinder, four valves per cylinder. Like, and it took for all. And, and so, yeah, I'm just here because I'm mucking about with motorbikes, mucking about. And then, and that's what this is really. This is me mucking about with the new five blade, trying to develop it and, 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 and get it to move on. So that's, that's yeah, that, that's that's yeah, that's what I mean. Does anything ever make sense <laughs> with you? <laughs> really, does it? No, no. But I mean, I, yeah, I'll be glad. I'll be glad. Right, we'll go All right. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Cheers. I don't know if he was cussing or even talking English, but I know I like that guy. And uh, he's the face of the Isle of Man for me. In the honor of the Isle of Man, I'd like to do a little segment that I've been wanting to do for quite a while now. And I'm going to call this segment Motorgasms. 
you ever heard a sports announcer get so excited about a play or uh, a move or maybe a takedown in UFC or something and they just like start screaming and it's like, oh my God, that sound, that guttural scream. What the heck? Sounds like you just uh, did something all over your microphone there, buddy. Uh, so... Uh, in in honor of the Isle of Man and the crashes, and we're not going to talk about uh, all the deaths that happened there, but it, it is a part of racing. But road racing in general, especially on circuits where uh, people get comfortable and uh, you know they decide that they're going to, you know, they're familiar with the track, or maybe they're not familiar with the track, and they're going to tip it in and uh, just go a little too far, push it a little bit uh, over the edge. Uh, Motorgasms is uh, what this is going to be called, and here are some of the reactions from some of the announcers uh, from several different countries. Take it away, announcers. See, so, yeah, there's still damp patches. Oh, oh, he's off. And the the brakes. Look at Guy Martin, really closing up on Michael Gullop, the Tyco Suzuki, plenty of top end, this is Diaz lead. Oh. Oh, is he close enough? He is! Wow. Oh, so late on the break. Oh, he's off! Oh, dear. Oh, nearly knocked out curb cam over. It has got over. Under the track, mostly. Oh, here we go. It's Plater again looking for a way round. Oh, meanwhile, Plater's back. Plater wheelies. Oh, dear me. Rutter's got over the grass. Rutter slipped off. Kawasaki, look at Danny. Oh, down. Right here, as you see him. Oh, Josh Hayes is off. Too far back to try and make a move there, but Jerry's in them down. Oh, that's a crash, that one, that was a, yeah, typical first. Very well, now the battle for second going through, oh dear, and that's Adam Dunn. Yeah, yeah, super fun. Oh, oh, he's at, uh, that's Sam Muldoon. Seven seconds back to the rest of the group, and now Knight goes off. And being the ex champ. Oh, right it down. Water down into that final goal, and Anstey down. He just seems to be making light work of everybody at the moment. Oh, he goes down. The championship leader goes down. Oh, outside and drops it down the inside. Oh, Petrov's down. Manterosoi wa, Junyi ga iru kaotte iru zo. Ah, Kagame Kyo ga straight de tentou da high side. Abunai. あぶない。高速のマシンがバイクに当たる危ない。あ、ゆらいビハインドバンドノーストレイトアウェイ。ヒセットマシン。アンダ。オー、ダッ。ダッ。ダッ。ダッ。ダッ。ダッ。ダッ
<laughs> There's a lot of people in there. Yeah, no matter what language you speak, we all speak the international language of, oh my God, he just ate some hand the bar. Uh, so let's get wrapping up the show here. I'm sure you're sick of my monotonous droning by now. I certainly am. Uh, I wish you would just come on the show and do it for me sometimes. Uh, but let's get on to the last of the miles, which is 500 miles. Why 500 miles? Well, next week is the Baja 500. If you don't know what the Baja 500 is, uh, you're dumb. Today's show is brought to you by the folks over at... Uh, uh, we can't go out on that note. We can't just call you dumb and then run away like cowards. You're not dumb. If you haven't heard of the Baja 500, maybe it's because you're not familiar with the SCORE International. And if you're not familiar with SCORE International, oh, brother, where to start? Uh, let's go back in time here to some of my notes. <laughs> Isn't it convenient that I have notes here for you? Um, yeah, let's check this out. Check this stuff out. So <clears throat> let's jump back in time. Can you hear those birds squawking behind me? I certainly can. It's really driving me insane. So I'm going to try and do this part super fast. All right. Enough of that nonsense. So let's jump. We're going to go back into the 1950s. We won't go too far further back than that because I know that uh, it might bring back some bad memories for you being uh, all of 23 years old. Um, so at the beginning of the Baja 1000 and desert racing in general are usually attributed to uh, one family, and that's the uh, Ekans brothers. Um, Bud Ekans, if you don't know, he was, well, he was many things, but let's start off with uh, his career as a professional stuntman in the U- in the U.S. film industry. Um, so he was one of the most accomplished stuntmen, actually, noted most noted for his work in The Great Escape. He was the guy that jumped the uh, motorcycle over the fence, uh, uh, Steve McQueen, you know, him and Steve McQueen were buddies. Actually, I believe they were riding buddies before he started doing stunt manning. I think that's how he got into stunt, being a stunt man. So to back it up a little bit, he grew up in the Hollywood Hills. He was born here in LA, um, rode a farm bike around chasing goats and everything all, all over the ranch. And uh, so became a really good dirt rider. Um, started racing in 1949. And by the mid 50s, he was one of the top motocross dudes motocross wasn't technically a thing here yet uh but he was uh, a desert racer a hare and hound racer um you know we'll talk about some other guys that did that like preston petty and stuff like that too but um We'll talk about them in another episode because Ekans was one of the first dudes that got really uh, famous from it. Became friends with Steve McQueen, got a stuntman job. He was in Bullet. If you've ever seen Bullet, oh my God, you know, some of the craziest real, this is before CGI and like all that you know, great crazy stuff that they do nowadays where like you don't really even have to drive a car, like all those scenes in the matrix and stuff. I'm sure they flipped over a lot of cars, but he had to really do it and not get killed so that he come back the next day and film some more stuff. So the great escape bullet, um, hot leather and Chrome, which I forget if I've seen, I don't think I have. Uh, he did a lot of the stunt work for chips in the seventies. Uh, you know, lots of every, every chips miraculously had something going down on the LA, 
or on the California freeways with cars flipping over and, you know, the Ponch and John had to swoop in and help somebody. It's just like th- there was just so many ramps on the freeways back in those days that cars couldn't help jumping over each other and crashing. But he did all the stunt scenes for that. Um, Towering Inferno. I mean, some stuff that wasn't even car related, I think. Or maybe he did like the car scenes where uh, like even a background car scene, this guy got called in. So before he got his career uh, stunt writing, uh, he had a deal with um, Matchless, I think. He was offered a deal to ride in the 1952 European Motocross Championship, uh, which he placed 15th in the world. I mean, this is like his first try, I think, over on the world stage. Um, And that's because he was such a good hare and hound rider. uh, District 37 over here in California is like one of the crazy ones like Kirk Caselli raced for him, uh, Destry Abbott, um, you know, Johnny Campbell, a lot of guys, a lot of famous Baja racers and stuff, uh, race district 37. Even to these days, there's still a lot of famous, um, motorcycle clubs that have come out of it. And it's like a crazy, uh, super prestigious, um, uh, district here in California. So district 37 champ, uh, seven times. Um, so after the 1952 deal with Matchless, uh, which he placed 15th, in 1955, he won the Catalina Grand Prix. And in 59, he became a three-time winner of the Big Bear Heron Hound Desert Race, which is uh, Big Bear is not too far from here. I'll probably be heading up there in a couple months for a motorcycle event. And at that time, the, the Big Bear Heron Hound was the largest off-road uh, event in the country, apparently. And if you know who Thor, or Tor Drake from uh, CC Coffee Co. in um, up in uh, Portland is, think of Ekans like that. He translated his victories into ownership. Like Tor's translated coffee into riding, and then riding back in, or, or you know, back into coffee, and then translated that into like a motorcycle shop now. Um, so Ekans did the same thing. He took all these victories and, uh, turned it into owner ownership. And, uh, he owned a triumph dealership in the mid sixties, uh, down in, in Hollywood became super popular. Um, and a lot of film actors started hanging out there like Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Clint Eastwood and all that stuff. He helped, uh, Bud Ekins helped Steve McQueen learn off-road racing, and and Steve McQueen loved it. And you can always see pictures of Steve McQueen on everybody's Instagrams and Tumblrs and all that stuff on a Triumph, right? And that's because of his friendship with Bud Ekins. Um, he later went on, you know, if you've seen On Any Sunday, you can see Steve McQueen racing as a Harvey Mushman in the Lake Elsinore GP. Uh, just on a side note, I want to mention that I went to the very last Catalina, uh, GP. I thought they were going to try and start it again, but it's just Catalina is one of those preserved places. So they ran it back in the fifties. Uh, it quit and they didn't run it again until, um, gosh, I forget even what year it was, but it was like 2006 or something like that. And, uh, I went down there and, and watched it. It was an amazing thing. And I could just imagine the people going through town and then out all over the Island. What a cool, cool race that would have been. And I uh, kind of said they didn't ever resurrect it. Uh, the Lake Elsinore GP for the first time in a long time is supposedly this year in 2017 going to be run through the town again, just like it was back in the seventies. So we're kind of seeing stuff get revived. It's kind of cool. Um, so anyway, you know, Ekans, McQueen, good buddies, uh, GP racing, all that great stuff. Right. So, um, 
his brother Dave joined Bud, uh, John Steen, Cliff Coleman, and Steve McQueen to race in the 1964 ISDE. And if you don't know what the ISDE is, it's the International's Six Days Enduro. Um, they raced uh, 650 TR6 trophies, uh, triumphs, of course. Um, he raced, Bud raced the ISDE for seven years, and he took uh, four gold medals in that time. It is like one of the crazy hardest, uh, it's a six-day enduro. And you can imagine the stuff that they put you through for six days, if you even make it that that long. It's a big deal in the off-road community uh, who choose who gets chosen from our country to represent us on the team, because I think you only get four guys. Uh, one, two, three, four. Yeah, I think there's four guys per team. And so um, it's a huge deal because it's such a crazy race. And, uh, you know, six days of getting your body just torn up and your bike torn up. So it's crazy that in seven years he took four gold medals. That's, that just uh, tells you what a good rider he was and to be tromping around on these 650 triumphs, you know what I mean? Like no suspension, you know, by today's standards, like just riding a brick, uh, over some of this crazy, crazy terrain. So it tells you how good of a rider he was. Well, in, in 1962, he was approached by American Honda. They wanted to test out the durability of their CL 72 scrambler. And, um, you know, it's like a one of the one of the coolest looking scramblers. Uh, reminds me of the old Ducati scrambler. Also, um, Honda, you're missing. You missed out on the scrambler boat, my friends. Uh, the resurrection has passed. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So they wanted to test the durability of the CL72 back then in '62. Uh, and his idea, there had been people trying to do these timed runs across the Baja Peninsula. Um, like unofficial, I guess, or, or official to them. And his thing was like, Hey, let's do a, like a timed 950 mile run from TJ down to La Paz. TJ is a Tijuana. It's right there on the border of San Diego. Um, and it's where Mexico and San Diego kiss basically. Um, and Tijuana is the city down to La Paz. It's a, uh, you know, 950 miles, uh, Bud set out because of his deal with Triumph, but his brother Dave and a Honda dealer named uh, Bill Robertson Jr. decided to make the run. And the plan was to use uh, like telegraphs in both cities to, to count as like the start and stop timer because you don't have all the crazy cool stuff. I mean, you did have stuff back in the 60s, I guess, but Mexico in the 60s, like a totally different place. You might as well have stepped back into America in the 1920s where you still have like some wild Native Americans running around and, and uh, the n- wars were just wrapping, you know, the, the quote Indian wars and the frontier wars were, were just like wrapping in the twenties and uh, believe it or not. So Mexico in the sixties is like stepping back to that. You had ranches. Um, the big cities were probably, you know, as big as little cities are in, uh, in America today. So planning was super essential. Um, back in there, there, those days, there was like no gas between Ensenada and La Paz, and it's pretty far. Um, so they decided a plane was going to help them. And what the plane would do, what it would spot for them, um, pick out routes that were good. I guess they, you know, they 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 were going to do this run in less than 40, 40 hours, I think. Yeah, 40 hours, I'm pretty sure, is what their, their target was. So the plane would like spot for them. It'd go ahead and drop fuel and sometimes drop uh, food for them. Like, uh, And allegedly, uh, one time, I'm not sure how many times they did this, but they ended up using some of the aviation fuel. They filtered it through a chamois right from the plane's wing tanks into the... Uh, 
right into the bikes. They would borrow gas from ranchers because the ranchers would just have these 55-gallon drums of gas kicking it around for their vehicles and tractors and whatnot, you know, since there was no gas um, out there in the country. You know, you were at large, basically, so you had to keep all the stuff. So if they started to run low, they'd pull up to a ranch, beg, borrow for uh you know, some of their gas that they had stored on premises. Um, they would carry these one gallon, uh, plastic tanks just strapped to the bike, um, just to make it across the peninsula, just cause it was not like it is today where there's a gas, like every, you know, 10 miles or off every off ramp freeway off ramp. It was like the wild West, very few paved roads actually. So when they started the trip, they get into it. Um, there was a lot of fog actually on the coast there. And then, uh, the at night, you know, the first night they had them riding, riding around in circles and stuff. And they were like burning up gas, not making any progress. So they found it kind of nearly impossible to navigate with the fog and uh, at night. And so the plane that it would leave fuel and, and food from because it couldn't wait around either. It couldn't fly at night and it couldn't fly in the fog. So they drop fuel um, where they where they could see they were going to be headed or whatnot. And I guess maybe rendezvous. I'm unclear as to how they communicated with each other, but uh, they let them know, you know, somehow that you got fuel and food here. They'd stop, they'd get it and fill up and then keep going. And they finally made it to La Paz. Like they made it through dirt. They made it through uh super tore up asphalt when they finally got into uh Closer to uh, civilization, they were like on potholed roads because they didn't, you know, we're talking Mexico in the 60s, um, you know, pavement, but terrible pavement. Um, so dirt roads, ranch roads, tr- desert, you know, just blowing through the desert, finally make it to civilization on these terrible asphalt chewed up roads because you're way south on the peninsula now, far away from uh, the U.S., you know, so it just gets like deteriorated the further down you go. And uh, they they made it in um, just four minutes shy of 40 hours. So that's pretty insane. They made it. Two years later, uh, Bud and Dave would retrace that route and they'd beat the time, but only by eight minutes. So in 39 hours and 48 minutes, uh, that was the target. And there was lots of people... Uh, like I said, people were doing that timed race, but people were like, hey, I want to try and do that. I want to try to beat their time. And so one of the people that was trying to beat that 39-hour and 48-minute uh, mark was a guy named Ed Perlman. Ed Perlman decided that there needed to be like a permanent race. And so he started this thing, uh, this organization called NORA, which was the uh, National Off-Road Racing Association. And from there, the very first ever Mexican 1000 from Tijuana down to La Paz was run in 1967. And so the Baja 1000, uh, gets its, or it says uh, established in 1962. Cause that's the first time they made this run for Honda. Um, but, uh, Nora started doing the actual race in 67 and then the Baja 500 was introduced, uh, by Nora in 1969. And sometimes they do loops. They, they made this, uh, later we'll talk about what they did later, but so yeah, the the late '60s and uh, early '70s, man, people were just like hot to beat this, uh, beat the time, and racing through Baja 
presents, especially in those times, presents, uh, you know, fuel, logistics, getting team, crew, you know, all this stuff. I don't even think they had that stuff back then. They were more like overlanders where you like pack what you need and you get down there. Maybe there's a fuel stop uh, since there was no fuel out there. Um, that's where the the uh, origin of the team, the, the, the pit crews and the teams came. And uh, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I posted a video, uh, like a full full length documentary from YouTube on uh, our website. And it's about a guy that went down and try uh you know privateer it's pretty much almost all privateers um and basically going through the desert how how much it takes to set up how much prep you need people have died out there people have got robbed out there johnny campbell who's a famous honda motorcycle racer has plenty of stories of uh being out there in the desert he's you know he's one of the most famous um, baja racers and he was <laughs> robbed at gunpoint and uh, lots of people have been uh, had booby traps set up for them because people want to spectate and they don't realize especially nowadays when st- when you're doing like a hundred over a hundred in these trucks that can just jump and have like six feet of suspension travel right they're soaking up these like three foot whoops like nothing and four foot whoops like nothing but when you're going and somebody builds a jump and they don't realize you're doing like a hundred plus miles an hour and they build like a five foot long jump and they're like yeah they don't realize that that's like hitting a brick wall at a hundred miles an hour you need a long your jump needs to be like a hundred yards long right and um not five feet long it's just like hitting a stinking uh a what's it called a traffic barrier in a, in a parking lot. Right. So, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff that happens down there, but this is the early times where people were like halfway planning, halfway, uh, overlanding it. Right. And so in the 1970s, you go back to listen to episode 36 and 42 of the creative writing podcast. You'll hear that we talk about, uh, the EPA and we do talk a little bit about the oil crisis and stuff like that. Um, it hits in the 1973, the race, it was abandoned by Nora and Nora actually disbanded. They like opted out of the race, uh, broke up the, the organization, but Baja, the government still wanted a race because I'm guessing the income from the teams and the spectators and everybody come down there to spend some some dough uh was you know bringing them some tourists bringing them some money um and so the there was a baja sports committee they ran the race that year but it was super hard to organize way harder to execute than they thought i mean it takes a lot of planning it takes a lot of logistics and it takes a lot of uh communication and stuff like that and we're talking you know we're getting into the 70s things are still uh you know a world away from what they are today but at the same time people are trying to get better about you know safety and and uh you know, obviously there was the, um, the EPA started right around that time. So there was environmental concerns, all this, all this stuff, right? So there's everything to consider that they, they hadn't thought of. And there was a a dude named Mickey Thompson who already had, uh, an organization called SCORE, which stood for the, uh, Southern California Off-Road Racing Entertainment, I think is what SCORE stands for. And so they say, Hey, we need to, we need to have you help us do this. So Mickey Thompson, uh, they enlist his help. He comes in. Um, there was no race in 1974 due to the uh, oil crisis and like a fuel shortage. But uh, Thompson went ahead and hired Sal Fish, who uh, who worked at Hot Rod Magazine, um, to head Score International, which was a new, you know, that would take over the Baja stuff. And Sal turned the Mexican 1000 into the Baja 1000, grew it into the world famous race that it's become today. And um, I forget, oh, I'm going to punch myself in the face again, second time in this episode, but I think Selfish may have recently passed away. I'm not 100% sure that's a terrible thing to get wrong, I guess. But um, but yeah, I 
I think that uh, Sal Fish has, you know, he ran it forever. Uh, he developed the San Felipe uh, 250. He continued the Baja 500. So all this uh, cool stuff. And then there's like a tons of races down there now. There's all sorts of races. We'll talk about that in a minute. But um, Ed Perlman's son actually resurrected Nora in 2009 or in 10 or something like that. And the Mexican 1000 made a comeback after nearly being absent for like almost 40 years. Uh, and the first Mexican 1000 was a vintage race. Um, and then the, ever since then, ever since 2010, they've let more and more uh, vehicles come in. They wanted to do like an alter. It was like vintage pre like 1978 or something like that. Uh, you know, and then, then they changed it to, well, now we want to include like alternative energy. So we got diesel and electric and, and propane cars. And then it turned into like, well, okay, we're just going to let everybody. And, um, I know if you last year, I think some of the guys from hell on wheels, motorcycle club down, um, a little further South here in, in, uh, California than I am, I think they're down in, uh, Santa Ana, they uh, actually took uh, and raced the uh, the the Mexican 1000 uh, last year. They might be de- doing it again this year. But the 1000s, uh, the Baja 500 is going to be next week. Is why I'm bringing up this whole thing. It's gonna it it's like a uh, four or five day long um, thing. You know, kind of like the Isle of Man, where they they only race. You know, literally like you yeah, thirty less than 40 hours, but, uh, the preps and the logistics and the pre-running and all that great stuff. I think it takes about a week to do. Um, and so, yeah, they're going to be down there. Uh, it's going to be actually June 1st to 4th. So four days, my bad. Um, and it's the 49th running of it. So that's pretty cool. And then this year in November 14th to the 18th is going to be the 50th Baja 1000. So celebrating half a century of doing these races. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure the 1000 takes place later in the year because it's like crazy heat. I mean, it's like a hundred and 15 down there already we're, we're having some pretty crazy weather right now it's a beautiful day today but we actually had some rain yesterday i can't believe it um but usually it's like up in the 80s right now and in mexico uh, last week it was like 115 it was like 90 something here so uh just amplify that by like 20 or 30 degrees down in mexico and you're you're in the desert and uh it's pretty crazy it's like a flat pretty flat uh peninsula as well um so it's an interesting you can go from super cold to super hot also. That's just how the desert is, you know what I mean? And so it's it's interesting. And I think they raced the 1,000 later in the year so that it's not like boiling. You would just die if you were out there in the desert for 1,000 miles. But uh, some of the co- competitors and legends that have come from the the, uh, the Baja series includes Parnelli Jones, um, Rod Hall, Walker Evans, Johnny Campbell, the whole McMillan family. McMillan is a realty company, and um, I'm pretty sure that's where they got their start, where they get their dough. And uh, yeah, they have like a whole racing faction. The guy that I used to autocross with actually ended up working for McMillan uh quit his job. I forget what he did, but he quit his job to go work for the McMillans. And he was like asking me, uh, stuff because I was a parts manager at the time. And that's basically what he was going to be doing for the McMillans. And he's like, do you want to come work for them? And you know, I'm not hundred percent sure what it's going to be like, but you know, we're going to be in uh, logistics speaking. We're going to be in like a full-time deal now. And I think the McMillans do, they have like, uh, just a whole bunch of uh, vehicles in every class. They're kind of like another family is the Herbst family. The terrible Herbst uh, has a lot of gas stations over in Nevada and they're a famous desert uh, racing crew too. So they have 
you know, vehicles in every single class, but they can afford like the multi-million dollar trophy trucks and stuff. So it's really interesting. Um, of course, Malcolm Smith, who is also on any Sunday, J.N. Roberts, uh, Bill Strop, Larry Rossler, who Larry Rossler started out on motorcycles and now he races, uh, you know, races uh, four wheels. Bob and Robbie Gordon, um, Ivan, Ivan, the Iron Man, Stewart, um, I mentioned Johnny Campbell before. Just a lot of legends have come out of that series because it's such a tough, tough race. And a lot of these guys have gone on to race. Uh, you may uh, know uh, Parnelli Jones and Walker Evans and Robbie Gordon from racing, uh, you know, uh, trucks like pro truck series and off-road series and stuff like that. So yeah, these guys do it like all year round now. And as I mentioned, there's, there are, there's the score. There is, Oh geez, I'm going to forget now. There's, there's a bunch of, uh, organizations that run down there. I can't think right off the top of my head, but I think there's one called code. Um, and there's one called record. And then there's, you know, like Nora and score. They do stuff all year round. I know people that when I uh, lived in San Diego, uh, they, a lot of the people I worked with were, um, Mexican and they, you know, commuted across the border to work and then drove home. And they said, man, it's, it's cool, but, the rancheros, like where the ranches still are out there, uh, they're just getting torn up because these things are getting raced all the time. And uh, it does bring down tourists. It does bring down, you know, camera crews and, uh, you know, people, spectators. And uh, it does pump the, uh, it temporarily pumps the economy. And that's all great. But at the same time, they're just like, dude, it really does, though, uh, tear up the landscape. You got pre-running all the time. You got all these classes from two wheels, uh, you know, little two-wheeled old VW Bugs, uh, which I think is like class 11. You have uh, uh, side-by-sides now racing. So you don't just have like old jeeps and buggies like you used to you got like everything from like 800 horsepower trophy trucks that are just tearing up you know every time they take a turn they tear out like three three feet of gravel uh from the ground but now you got all these different classes competing all the time and if you think of all the race gas i mean it's not fun to think of the crappy stuff we do having fun but it's a reality for the people down there and uh, i know some of them are kind of starting to see like the dark side of the racing um and even the spectators going out into the desert and just thrashing the desert. And that's not the racer's fault. I mean, that's the people's fault. But when you get like thousands of people wanting to see a crash or wanting to go out and just hang out and get drunk and watch racing, and then they leave like all their campfires and all their trash and stuff out there, it's like tearing it up apparently. But uh, if they could uh, mitigate some of that stuff, it'd be super fun to do. I've actually helped people. Uh, I used to be super into Volkswagen Beetles, and I've actually helped some people locate some uh, stuff to do class 11 racing. And, uh, yeah, I never have, you know, this is another one of those things like the Isle of Man. I've never gone down to spectate, uh, Baja or race Baja or anything like that. But I have a lot of friends that, that have, um, one of my friend's dads used to race, uh, he had a, a truck team, not a, I'm not sure if it was trophy truck, but $35,000 per, like weekend that they went racing. And uh, I was like, dude, how do the, how do you do that? And I, I can see how you spend that much on just the team and the food and the gas and, you know, 
permits to get down there and everything like that and, and entry fee and $35,000. And that doesn't include the stuff that you already own, like the rigs, all of the uh, equipment, like the get from everything from like tie downs to gas cans that you own, spare tire, like that just, that's just like the cost to go down there and race. And I was like, how, how did they do $35,000 a weekend, you know, compared to the dude in the class 11 V dub that's like barely, uh, you know, just cobbled that thing together and, all you got to do is put like a roll bar in it, you know, and you're good to go. Um, you use stock, everything else, you know, and uh, lift it up a little bit and you're good to go. So, I mean, there's different budgets and stuff. So it's interesting. Uh, the insights I've had to that, my old boss, actually pretty cool, um, story. He won the Baja 1000, I think, uh, racing for Gemco. If you ever knew Gemco, they were a buggy company. Um, yeah, he raced and the owner of Gemco, uh, or something like that had built the car and he did a lot of the driving to the last leg. And then they all, you know, him and like three other guys drove most of it. And then they got out like 60 miles from the finish. So the owner could, uh, drive the car across the finish line so you know nothing like having somebody do like uh 900 miles and then you do like the last like 60 (laughs) so but anyways yeah if you get a chance check it out the baja 500 uh if you're down that far um down in san diego or something and you have a passport and you're looking for a good time going down to rough it in mexico i'd go check it out man so that's the Baja. That's our episode. Uh, one mile, 35 miles, 500 miles. It's time to wrap this baby up, put a bow on it. I'd like to, uh, before we kick out of here, say check out uh, June 3rd, I believe, is the next WIR Top 10 race. Go check them out. Follow them if you get a chance. They are our favorite drag racing crew up in uh, Wisconsin at Wisconsin International Raceway doing the real street drags. Uh, Check out their page on Facebook. Just look for WIR's Top 10 Bikes. I don't think I need to tell you this, but the Sturgis Rally is coming up pretty soon. Uh, If you get a chance, go to, if you're in the LA area, uh, the uh, swap meet's going to be happening. And uh, Newcomb's Ranch is going to be having some music up there on Sunday, I believe, around 11. Other than that, have a safe and happy holiday. If you are in another part of the world and uh, you're celebrating one of those holidays that I mentioned at the top of the show, have a good time. Be safe. Ride safe. And uh, enjoy yourselves. Enjoy a three-day weekend and uh, hug the ones you love, peeps. All right. And as always, um, number 69, ride in peace. Happy Memorial Day weekend, everybody. <coughs> In the twins, uh, Shayna Texter took her second pony. Did I already talk about Shayna Texter? Come on, man. Uh, pro tip, Shayna Texter races in the singles, you dummy. Make sure you clean the lint out of your belly button. Otherwise, this could happen. And it's a terrible... Most people don't know that that's how he died. So just be careful out there and make sure brush your...
still damp patches. Oh! 